Hello and welcome back to the Agents of Change and Environmental Justice podcast, a partnership between Environmental Health News and Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health. I'm Brian Binkowski, Senior Editor at Environmental Health News and the Editor of Agents of Change. Happy autumn to you all. We are busy working behind the scenes with our fourth group of Agents of Change fellows, and we are so excited for you listeners to hear them. Within the next couple of months, we'll be introducing you to the latest agents. So if you don't already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's guest hanging out is Oganaya Dotson-Newman, a senior program officer in the environment program at the JPB Foundation. Oganaya talks about her path to philanthropy, the importance of getting funding and resources to frontline communities, and her love of toast. There's a lot of laughing in this podcast, and I had such a great time talking to Oganaya. There's also a lot of information as she has a brilliant mind and a unique perspective on environmental justice work coming from the philanthropic side. Enjoy. All right, I am here with Oganaya Dotson Newman. Oganaya, how are you doing this morning? Um, I'm okay. How are you? I'm doing excellent. And where are you this morning? Um, I am. We're still working remotely, so I'm in Brooklyn, um, Lenny Lenape territory. Excellent. In my little office nook area. Yes, and I see a sign behind you that says, you are magic, which is uh, a good message. Yeah, it's my reminder for the people in Zoom land. I've been trying to remind myself, like, you exist, that is enough, so. Yes, that's a, (laughs) that is a, that's an excellent message. Yeah, it's a cool company, it's, um, I think the, it's a black woman-owned company, and I think she lives here in Brooklyn. Very cool, do you Mm. know the name of it? Yeah. Um, Rayo and Honey, I think. Great. Well, hopefully she listeners... makes a bunch of things. Hopefully listeners Sorry. can go check that out. No, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, so speaking of place, so you are originally from the Bay Area, and you came from, from what I've read, you came from a family that was embedded in community and environmental activism. So I was wondering <laughs> if you could talk a little bit about this and how it shaped your career path. Yeah. So um, I, I, I'm from like... Bay Area adjacent. I don't. I claim the Bay Area culturally, like music, but I grew up just north of the Bay Area in a county called Sonoma County. Or as I joke sometimes with some of my friends, I tell them I come from the streets of the wine country. <laughs> um, and so I think it's about like thirty to forty-five minutes, depending on the part of the Bay Area that you're um, going to, from where I grew up. And I think that because I spent a lot of time um, with my mom's side of the family that lived in um, Richmond, California, um, and Richmond, California is kind of like um, ground zero for EJ um, work, I think, sometimes in um, on the West Coast, um, because there's a huge um, oil refinery that kind of sits... Um, at the end, when you enter Richmond from the Richmond Pinole Bridge, um, and that oil refinery kind of like I think sets the context or sets the stage for a number of different environmental issues. So, um, my mother and father wanted us to know our extended family members, and so my aunt, I would say, 
um, excuse me, although many like my grandfather and my uncle and other folks were involved in this work, my aunt was the one who kind of like really um, engaged me in a way. So basically my mom would send me with our aunt to do different things. She would take us to different protests. I think at the time she was really involved in doing work in um, Richmond around environmental issues, which was an extension of her other activism that she had done around kind of like, she was the first person that I knew that talked about like housing, access to water and utilities as a human right. Um, I think before that, she had done some other work with my other aunt around like welfare reform, um, which was I, I, which was I think a st- an extension of the work that my grandfather had been doing in the community. And I think, as far as I know, because all of this precedes my birth, um, my uncle at the time was kind of working in public health um, and doing things related, but not in the same way. So. I think that is how um, I usually talk about <laughs> um, how I got most engaged, because basically I went to a, um, there was maybe a rally, I don't know, my memory's kind of foggy, but there's definitely a hearing of the California Air Resources Board that my aunt took me to, where I was like, ooh, this is what it looks like when someone <laughs> speaks truth to power. Um, and it was also a good, I think, realization for me, because I'd been taking like chemistry at the time, um, and I'm always thinking about how important it is to have abstract concepts that are usually taught in chemistry be applied because um as she was talking I was like oh I think I learned about that I don't think that's like exactly the right thing that she was saying um so I talked to her afterward and she was like oh you you understand this you know a lot you should come (laughs) with me to this other meeting and talk to people and I think it was one of the first times too that I like because I was kind of an annoying know-it-all child. So it was one of the times I was like, oh, these o- older people are listening to me. <laughs> and they're like, yeah. And I was using also the same like colloquialisms because that was my, that was my like community or part of my extended community. So I think it made me realize, oh, this is a thing I can do. Like I can use this information from science that I think is really interesting and kind of like talk about it with people that I love, identify with and care about. Um, And so I think from there, it kind of just sent me on a path where I think initially I wanted to be an environmental engineer. And then me and calculus had an initial meeting. (laughs) I didn't have a TI-85 calculator. It was not a good match. (laughs) Um, I went back to the drawing board. I was like, I'll just do like environmental education or something. I was kind of like, so I just studied, I think, environmental science. I did end up passing calculus for the record. So you've been in New York for some time now. Do you consider yourself a New Yorker? Yeah. Um, no. I t- I've been having this conversation a lot because I think a few days ago I realized it's been 16 years since I've been here. Um, I will always be like a California girl, California person. Um, and then I think I've, I um, have relationships with people who were like born and raised in New York and sometimes I feel like they're trying to be nice to me. <laughs> they're like, oh, yeah, you're like a New Yorker now. And I was like, but am I? Um, so I feel like of this place, um, there's lots of things that I think I've taken on or that um, have taken over me, I guess, like culturally that I find um, really interesting. And I find moving around the city very, I find it very comforting and it's home. But I don't think I would call myself a New Yorker. I would call myself probably like a Californian who's found a lot of comfort living on the East Coast and in New York, just because like there are just some things about existing on the East Coast that are just different. 
Yes, totally. And I want to talk about why some of your early work when you moved there to New York. But first, a、mm-hmm. uh, question I've been asking everybody is what is a defining moment that shaped your identity? Oh. And that is a big, huge question. And、yeah. that can be personal, professional, <laughs> whatever, whatever comes to mind. <laughs> I'm like, my birth. <laughs>、um, <laughs> I guess that was the first one. You know, I think that story. So there's a piece of the story that I left out that I usually tell people. Um, so now, I guess more people will hear it. So, I always joke because about the time when my aunt took me to that、um, hearing because she was like, Come up here, Ogunai, come up here, stand next to me. So, I was like standing next to her. And in a lot of these hearings, there's a real like visual element sometimes. If I don't know what happened, it's like I had an out of body experience with, where you like are standing lower than the people who you're talking to on the board, right? So, we're like looking up at these people. And if she's like yelling, Directing her very strategic rage. <laughs> like, right? She also taught me, like, rage is necessary.、Um, she's like, and you know, y'all have been allowing Chevron to, like, pollute the community, and there are all these toxins, and my niece. Has jacked up teeth because of toxins. And I'm like, wait, what? Did this lady just throw me under the EJ bus? Like, what? But that is also the beauty of, like, I think being in the, being a person who can understand, like, she kind of threw me under the EJ bus, but, like, that was not her intention. Her intention was to get this point. And the most fascinating thing about that also is, like, she was, because I didn't grow up in that neighborhood, but what it was is that my mom, My grandmother,、um, my grandparents kind of had been impacted by toxic chemicals for a long time. They also moved from a place, right? They moved from what is known as like Cancer Alley, Louisiana, to Richmond. My grandfather worked in like the shipping yards. Before they moved to this place called Parchester Village, they lived in this other place. And my mom's told me stories about how they found out that the housing projects had kind of been built on this toxic dump. So there's this interesting, like, Toxic legacy that I sometimes like talk about because in environmental health issues, what I've realized is she was actually getting to、um, the impact of toxic chemicals at the genetic level, which now is like a huge field of practice, like molecular epi- epigenetics, right? And so to me, I'm like, if you need someone to explain to you epigenetics, I have to use that example. And so to me, that was like a defining moment in many ways because, like, You know, I mean, this is almost like 30 probably years later. I'm still interested. I'm still passionate about this work. I'm still very grateful for her impact in my life and all of the other people、um, that were deeply impactful around that. So, I mean, it was really a defining moment. Also, it could mean that I have like a little bit of a type A personality because I was like, I'm going to translate science within four communities of color and low income. Like, I don't know like, what 12 or 13 year old is like, telling people that that's their like, professional and personal mission. And then at what, I'm like 41 now, I'm still like, my mission is this. I'm just in a different part of the movement. I don't know why I'm using that voice, but. Well, and t- you know, I've had people on here who have talked about、uh, having the env- you know, some kind of environmental issues as part of their childhood. But it sounds like your aunt was bridging social issues. You mentioned housing. I mean, she was really looking at this intersectional,、uh, these intersectional issues. It's not just the environment, it's, it's all the way down the line, which I think, what a fantastic grounding for the kind of work that you've ended up going into. Yeah,、um, it was. And I think, you know, fortunately or unfortunately,、um, 
when you're in therapy, you're like, oh, let me just think about this one moment. And I'm like, oh, I had all these like environmental like things that very much shaped um, how I think about the work. But I also think that um, the most important thing that I took away from that and really resonated with me is like she was talking about environmental conditions in relationship to how people live their lives. And I think, you know, sometimes in my professional life, I'll have conversations with people who are talking about things as like separate silos. And my brain starts to just melt when that happens. I'm like that little new emoji. <laughs> I'll be like, I don't understand. They kept talking about this thing just as like singular. And I, I, I do I not get it? Am I not accepting it? But I, you know, I think finding ways to recognize to recognize and acknowledge the way that people actually live their lives can be very helpful for coming up with I think then more complex solutions because you know, oftentimes if you only solve for one thing in an interconnected space, you create probably like 153 other things, <laughs> um 150 other three uh unintended consequences. So, yeah. And speaking of this this impact, it sounds like so you were previously at We Act for Environmental Justice, and I think anybody who's aware of the environmental justice movement and things mm-hmm. that are going on are aware of that organization. And it, and it seems like that position was kind of pivotal pivotal in your early development career development. So I was just kind of wondering if you could talk about what you learned working for that you know grassroots environmental justice organization, specifically as it relates to healthy housing. Yeah. Okay. So. I learned everything and a lot. (laughs) Um, I learned a lot about myself. (laughs) I also learned um, a lot about like how the world works and how change works, which I think can be very interesting. I learned a lot about um, how policies are made, how community organizing campaigns are built, um, interpersonal dynamics. I think everything that you probably can or want to learn or sometimes don't want to learn um you learn at a job that like that um and then the other thing that I think was really interesting about the healthy housing work is I think it's uh, I think a lot of my time at we act also cemented um my belief system around kind of like the interconnectedness of um environmental issues and most important is because I always have this joke um about Um, being an environmentalist is one of my identities. And I always say, you know, a lot of my friends, like, sometimes get annoyed about my environmentalism stuff or maybe don't talk to me about it as much. But they always enter into environmental issues through two areas. One of them is, like, personal care products. Um, Most of them were just annoyed because I had a natural deodorant phase that, you know, had some trials and tribulations. (laughs) Um, and then, so if anybody needs natural deodorant recommendations, I'm here. <laughs> um, and then the second one is through housing because housing oftentimes, I argue, is um, a public health intervention and a social justice and just like social intervention that is so powerful. Um, but oftentimes it's like exempted from environmental health or people don't think about it in that way. But you know, you spend so much time in your home. I mean, I think the, the and the pandemic, I think, has raised the awareness of people around this in so many ways, because like it's your end of we used to have this diagram that I think um, the woman that I actually initially talked to about the position that we act, even though I was applying for another job, I think she had created it was um, her name is Swati. Um, and so it showed like 
the individual home environment and then it showed like for New York City most quite a few people live in buildings so it shows like your apartment building then it shows you know it was very interesting to learn about like the block by block kind of like environment right so then you have your block and then you have your neighborhood and then you have your like broader community and oftentimes um you know you can do cross class cross um cultural cross all types of things that usually stop us from engaging each other um in relationship to housing um and there are like lots of examples about that um and you know you look at the principles of environmental justice and there's like a component about housing so i think just like really understanding what an intervention housing can be and like and you see it because i think another thing is like i got into this work because i knew and understood that some of the wins that may occur i'm not going to see in my lifetime right like you have to be I feel like I'm going to answer one of your future questions. Like, you have to be very hopeful, in my mind, to be a part of the environmental justice movement, even if it doesn't sound like your traditional hope, right? Um, And I think that to be hopeful is understanding that you have invested your life in work where you will probably not see the results of some of that work in your lifetime, in however children's lifetime or those children's children's lifetime so I think that was the thing that really um has been impactful to me about my time at WEACT I mean I met wonderful people there you know the interesting thing about the health and housing work at WEACT is that um it was one of the areas where because there is quite a bit of work that we were doing where well and by we I mean the organization but mostly one of the kind of like community health workers organizers that were working most directly with some of the members and the work that they would do, you could see very immediate like results because sometimes they were working with people to like solve housing issues. And then we also participated in like coalitions who were also going to have more long-term or medium like impacts. Um, And the work went in waves. So there was like a healthy housing campaign that related to lead, before I got to We Act many years in its history, there was a whole set of or body of work that we did um, related to healthy homes and especially related like some of it was related to garbage and recycling. And then some of it was also related to lead. We did like a lead dust wipe sampling like video. Um, and it was just really interesting to see the impact on individuals when they would be able to advocate and actually get a change or an improvement in their housing. Um, And it's fascinating because, um, you know, there's so much information that I consider to be environmental health information that I generally use when I'm looking for an apartment. And my dad would always joke, you know, I think this could be a business for you. I'm like, I'm not interested (laughs) in that. Um, But, and, and also it resulted in some of the kind of like information or educational materials that we, that were developed um, at a number of different, times that we act and sometimes that were the result of um the community academic partnerships which was um the main part of my job <laughs> um, when I was at we act which was kind of funny because I was talking to a friend of mine recently and she was like yeah I remember when you were like an event planner at that environmental organization and I was like <laughs> that was not my job but I can understand how you now believe that because we planned like healthy homes conferences we planned talks 
We would plan um, sometimes toxic and treacherous tours. We would do um, programs with young people. Um, one of the most interesting projects that I think we did that relates to housing was really understanding more about the nuanced um, relationship between tenants, the management company, and really the staff that work together to like keep buildings up. And those are like the supers, porters, handy people. I'm sure there's a bunch of other names. And it was fascinating because we did this photo voice project. And photo voice is like a qualitative research method where you kind of ask folks questions, you have them take pictures, they explain things around the pictures. And so, you know, initially when we had been talking to folks, they were just like, the supers are lazy. They're just not cleaning out the garbage um, disposal room or whatever. And then we were like, what? My colleague was like, something doesn't sound right. And then, um, and that was coming kind of from the management sometimes and the actual um, residents. And then we would talk to the supers and learn more about like what their what their requirements were that they had, um, how many people in some of the buildings they had working um, per people living there. So a lot of times the ratios are just completely out of whack, um, and how um, in some ways right the supers became were this like um, were this were at the center of a lot of people's rage and became the villains. And when you often talk to them, you learned about. A, all the things that people put down trash chutes, which was fascinating. Um, all the ways in which people want to, like, you know, very quickly blame, um, you know, someone else when you're like, who did this? And then you point to yourself. Um, and then all the ways in which, um, you know, I guess in some ways capitalism is not helpful at provide, at like allowing um, businesses to think about profit or think about money in a way. Um, that allows people to be treated as their their full selves. And I think in some ways, right, like sets people up for success because dealing with garbage is the pretty challenging. Um, you have, you, I assume you have to have a lot of hope to do that job. too. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was really um, and I think it spoke, speaks right to the larger issues, too, around garbage and sanitation issues that come up because. You know, there are many parts of the kind of waste system in which people are scapegoated. And, um, you know, the solution is all around all this like individual um, kind of like actions when really um, the system is broken. And a lot of it is fueled just by like, you know, too much stuff and, a, and um, you know, the idea that people think that they can throw things away. And you stuck stuck working in housing after that as the assistant director of public housing and health for the New York City Housing Authority and City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. That is a mouthful. Yes. (laughs) So I'm wondering, now you're at uh, JPB, so why the career move to philanthropy? Yeah, so um, this is actually going to take me back to my WEAC. So I started working at WEAC, and I worked for WEAC from like 2008 to I think 2000, late 2015. And so the thing about myself as a young person is, you know, I talked about my focus. So there is one question, WEAC was fascinating, they had this group interview process. So once you met like the executive director and the deputy director, they'd send you in to meet with the whole staff, which is, you know, kind of a wild concept, but also like a very um, innovative way to interview people. So someone was like, you know, what is your plan? 
and I was like, oh, I have a 15-year plan. I get really excited about plans, like loose ones. And I was like, I will work five years at a nonprofit. I will work five years at local government. And I will work five years in philanthropy. And at the end of this 15-year <laughs> cycle, I will come back and be the executive director of an organization like We Act. <laughs> Two years in... I was like, do I really want to be an executive director? <laughs> um, and it's funny, right? Because I've come to the end of that 15-year cycle. Um, and I end—I mean, at the end of the 15-year cycle, I'm in philanthropy. And I think it was just like really the idea of understanding kind of like how these components, those were the kind of like three huge components that I saw as really important in making change within um, the environmental justice kind of like ecosystem. Um, so that was, so in theory, like philanthropy and local government fit. Um, but as we all know, when you're looking for a job or trying to figure out what your next role is from whatever your current role is, you just never know where you might, (laughs) um, end up. And so the job, um, at the housing authority and the department of health, that's kind of an easier way to say it was, um, an interesting experiment because it was one of the first times where they tried to have a line item, Um, Or like, you know, a salary line for someone who would work in between both agencies and really learn about um, what was happening between both agencies related to housing and health. And there's a ton of stuff actually going on that I think a lot of people sometimes just didn't know about because, I mean, there are two huge agencies. And then I think for me, I had these grand dreams that were not really um, at the scale of the <laughs> where I was, where I was like, oh, you know, what would happen or how interesting would it be if housing authorities or even people that, you know, um, manage, develop, um, build housing thought of themselves as part of the public health system? Because essentially they are. Because, you know, you can change somebody's housing environment and see immediate like psychosocial um impacts um and it's to me I think every time I see more and more evidence of it it's fascinating and I mean I've also experienced it in my personal life because I was reflecting on the apartment that I grew up in it was really rainy where we were in the winter and I had some type of allergy or allergic reaction to mold and our, my walls would kind of mold every winter. So I was like, tell them I'm like, you know, it's so fascinating because I realized like for winters for many years, I just used to sleep like kind of in the living room. My parents would kind of, we would work together to clean the wall, probably using not the right practices. Um, but I think that also helped me to ground me in like, what is this work for? What is the practical aspect of it? How do I keep from getting, you know, kind of like in the esoteric realm? And I think, you know, a lot of these experiences that I've talked to you about, like, are always very close to me because they remind me about, um, you know, what this is all about. Because I think also when you're many steps away from some of that work and philanthropy is even more steps away than like the local government or even working at WE Act, um, you know, it's like a constant reminder because sometimes I'll be like do I want to just like stop all this and like you know become an Instagram influencer (laughs) not that there's anything wrong with that (laughs) but do I want to make like a significant shift like do I just want to like work on a beach and have a cafe that's open from (laughs) 2 to 3 p.m. where I just serve like 
bougie toast. <laughs> like, <laughs> who knows? Maybe one day I'll do that. But for now, <laughs> like, that's the next does, fifth. That's the next uh, fifteen year plan. Yeah. Is, <laughs> how, how can my bougie toast serve the environmental justice movement? Maybe that's the question <laughs> I should be asking myself. So I think I was reading a paper you co-authored, and I thought it was a nice way to frame some of the philanthropy work you're doing. So it talked about the importance of frontline organizations for communities, but how they're consistently neglected by funders. So I was wondering if you could first just kind of, for listeners, explain what you mean by a frontline organization and maybe some examples of how they are essential for communities and what can and should be done to make sure they're getting funding. Yeah. Oh, Wow. I mean, I saw this question. I thought, wow, that's a tough question. And I'm still sitting here thinking of the answer. But, um, you know, I think we when we were thinking of um, like language to use for the article, (laughs) um, I think we were trying to come up with a term that would really encapsulate um, organizations that oftentimes um, like don't get as much funding. Um, and so oftentimes when we're talking about frontline communities, frontline communities, I mean, it is like a physical description. These communities are all on the front line of different things. Yeah, these communities like Mossville in Louisiana, it is on the front line, meaning like the literal neighborhood is a is like people living in houses on one side and then a company, Sassol, like with this huge toxic imprint on the other side. You have folks in um, working in coastal areas like in Alaska or other places where because of like bioaccumulation, how things work, they are literally at the front line of understanding higher concentrations of pollution that gets cycled up into their community um, because of the thermohaline cycle in the ocean, right? They're also at the front line of seeing how erosion from, you know, a warming ocean and different like wave action can like take away land. So it phys- it is actual like terminology um, that is linked to organizations, right? That describes um, many of these communities who are living. Um, sometimes we use fence line, <laughs> um, or like you know, in pretty close geographic proximity to um, um, p- pollution. And in some time, and in some ways, like you've seen uh, lots of language that people use to describe their community. Um, so it's not an end-all, be-all term. We um, wanted to provide people also with a clearer understanding of organizations that are working in direct relationship with the communities. And, you know, m- many um, frontline organizations are working within the community that they're um, fighting for um, versus, you know, sometimes you have other types of organizations that just aren't physically based in the community that they're working toward. And so there's just a level of um, understanding about the cultural, right, political, historical nuances of the work that happens there. Um, And so the idea of the article was to, you know, in theory, call um, our philanthropy colleagues in, call ourselves in, um, to reminding us... um, what we need to do in funding, right? Because the other thing is, like, philanthropy... I think sometimes um, we forget about the history of, like, or the genesis of things, um, which deeply impact how they exist in the present. And so, um, 
you know, I, I often also believe that people will kind of function in what is most comfortable or familiar with them. And so um, this probably relates a little bit to a future question. You know, I think the changing kind of like types of people that are in philanthropy also influences um, different types of decisions that are made because essentially you have people that know and understand or at least more comfortable with the different ways in which people are doing their work um, and often operate um, sometimes as a translator. Um, I love the like a doula. They're helping to um, build a bridge across because, you know, you need um, funding to do work um, or resources. Um, And so oftentimes there is a huge gap in that because especially like I always joke about um, like there's this word mess. I feel like this came from my um, my grandparents. So like every like I always say like everybody has different types of mess or like people are mostly generally also all a hot mess. It's just like what hot mess are you most comfortable with and how can you build some equity and parity into understanding how to engage that mess? <laughs> um and in many times right I'm going to fund or I work at an organization and part of the strategy for my portfolio is I was like, you know, I want to fund everyone i'm not just gonna pick one type of mess because it's (laughs) more familiar with me um and so i think you know having a diversity of people and thought um and allowing and trusting those folks to find and identify different types of organizations that work within the parameters of any foundation that you're working at is helpful and you're starting to see i think some of the results of that but there's still more work to do lots more work to do And then the other thing that I'll add is many times these organizations, they understand and actually have solutions that sometimes get co-opted by by bigger organizations. Um, But also in many of the cases in of disaster and just like things that have happened, the evidence (laughs) and the proof is in the work that they've done. You you see it in so many places. And I think there's like also a very interesting discussion that's happening because I think we're at a tension point currently in our society, which like really reflects this. So I was wondering, what is one thing or maybe a couple things that you would want environmental justice researchers, activists, organizations to know about that world, the philanthropy world? Um, I often tell people, well, I think, I mean, I think I'm still trying to figure it out. (laughs) Um, The other thing that I tell people is that I mean, I don't know if this is helpful or not, but I often approach them. I'm like in the same ways if you have an organizing strategy um, around like a target for, you know, a pollution company or something, you should have that same strategy and ways of building relationship with um, folks that work in philanthropy. I think there's a lot of like while still, you know, recognizing and acknowledging all the power dynamics. um, And that in some cases, too, and I I don't know, I feel like my advice is like, everybody knows that, Um, you know, like forming a relationship with your program officer and also um, sometimes working with that program officer, program director in harmony um, to figure out like what a long term strategy for funding may be. Um, I do think that that comes with like so many caveats. Um, And also, you know, the other thing that comes up is how people recognize 
how people influence people recognize their positional power versus how people external to it. So, you know, there are a lot of things that sometimes a program officer thinks that they might be able to do, but then their board or whoever, wherever they are in the um, hierarchy, they may not be able to do what they thought. And so I generally try and operate with as much honesty and transparency as possible, which I feel like can be very scary. Um, and I'm still sometimes learning the balance of information that should and shouldn't be shared. Um, but I think that is something that um, a lot of people sometimes are curious about. Um, and so I do that. The other thing is I generally just want like talking to people about at least um, having a conversation around the way they understand philanthropy and the way I understand it. Cause sometimes we both are learning together. Um, and then like some of the, some of the mist, like mystification of philanthropy, I think too is sometimes like by design, <laughs> um, which feels like a weird thing to say, but <laughs> You know, folks will be like, oh, I went on the website. And I'll be like, but some of these websites don't have any information on them. Because, like, you know, in the same way that folks, I think, externals of philanthropy are working on all of their stuff and figuring out how to approach. I think sometimes people in philanthropy, too, they're working on or maybe need to be working on some of their stuff about why there are um, barriers or why, you know, some of some of the things that can come up that create um challenges for pairing people who like some have resources with folks who um want those resources because even sometimes that comes up for us where i'll be like why are people acting like this i'll be like oh i'm connected to resources like don't Mm -hmm. forget about that just because i don't necessarily personally feel like i have so much positional power (laughs) like there is power there and i can't run away from it so what are you hopeful about what are you optimistic about when it comes to the environmental justice movement, to projects you're seeing, to com- community organizations you're seeing, what what gives you hope? Yeah, I think every time I see an organization kind of like win something or introduce me or they introduce me to a new framework, I get really excited. I think I'm very fascinated by folks who are like who have been working for a long time to talk to get um, like scientists and other folks to understand the interconnectedness, but it feels like there's a room movement in understanding issues from a systems approach. And I think a lot of folks who have been working in environmental justice for a long time have been pushing for that, um, have been pushing for governments to, for government to understand that, have been pushing for um, the entities that fund researchers to understand that. So they fund research while also the researchers to do that. And then, um, you know, it is really interesting and fascinating to see how um, people who are stepping into leadership are thinking about this, talking about this, and really figuring out ways to move forward. So to me, I think I'm most hopeful when I see the like kind of global um, interactions between folks using different strategies for engaging, striking holding folks accountable, thinking about different types of innovative materials that you can use that will um, help improve people's um, health. And then finally, like, I don't know, I just really appreciate all of the um, folks within the movement that I think have also like nurtured me, but nurtured other people who now may find themselves in a different spot in the movement, but are tapping into um 
and working through stuff like trying to move more money to frontline or grassroots organizations like that I mean I am a byproduct of that advocacy and that work like the fact that there's a position we have another I have a colleague um, her portfolio is all environmental justice like the fact that there are programs like that and then people are really trying to think strategically about how to ensure that those programs don't go away like in the near future because one of my um, I think interesting critiques oftentimes of my work and other work especially if I'm asking questions around like outputs is like Okanaya you're asking some of these questions around outputs but like can someone really like undo systemic oppression over three years with $200,000 a year even though it took 400 years and like billions of dollars to get us here no (laughs) (laughs) so I appreciate that I guess um you know sometimes I'm able to be more realistic about the outcomes and approaches um and there's lots of people who make commentary on this so that i think makes me feel hopeful inherently excellent and i think it's important i know uh as having worked in journalism and done a lot of environmental justice journalism it's good to celebrate the small victories because there is this long view that you talked about earlier and things don't change overnight um so I really appreciate that perspective. So, Oganaya, this has been fantastic to hear about your work. I have three quick questions for you, fun questions, maybe not so fun as you told me before we started, <laughs> and then a final question so you can answer with one word or a phrase if you'd like. The first one is your go-to guilty TV show or movie. Okay, so, oh, there's not one word. I'm very, um, (laughs) I am a sucker for like reality television, like almost all categories of reality TV I've been watching for so long. So like, and I always make jokes. I'm like, I have learned so much from reality TV. (laughs) People are like, what the drama? And I'm like, I'd rather deal with that drama than the drama that I see on Capitol Hill that like actually impacts my life. Like, their drama is, like, <laughs> it's too much. Like, this drama, I'm like, oh, it's, like, them and their three friends at, like, some Balenciaga store, and they're just, like, making fun of themselves. But, like, these people, like, actually brought the drama, and now, like, I may not have a right to health care. That's wild. Right. That seems very, like... <laughs> yeah, that reality show on CNN at night yeah. is way more yeah. way more depressing. No, yeah. I, that's, that's, that's very true. So here's a question that you were super excited about. Yankees. Oh, yeah. Mets or who cares? Um, you know, <laughs> I, I'm not a bit, uh, yeah. The Giants, the A's, I will always go. and forever rep like Bayer teams. The Warriors, go Warriors, yeah. So, I mean, I'll go to a game, but generally, I'm not super into baseball. Gotcha. And last, <laughs> your favorite thing to cook? Oh, I love cooking. Right now, I'm really into, like, toast. Like, I made this toast over the weekend. It had, like, pesto, ricotta, sautéed mm. peas, um, a, a runny egg, and hot sauce. I love bougie wow. toast. It's, like, so good. That sounds fantastic. My wife and I just traded. We have a seed farm where we save seeds, and we just traded some seeds for rose hip jam or jelly i think oh and i had never had it before and yeah. it is delightful it is so good i had some on toast the other day does it taste like roses rose hips confuse me yeah it confuses me too it's whatever it is it's subtle and it's obviously as a jam it's kind of sweet so yeah. i should uh 
I should dig into it more, but it's fantastic. So, Oganaya, the last question I have for you is, what is the last book that you read for fun? That's so interesting. I actually read my friend's book for fun. Um, let me get the title of it. Um, it's an amazing book, and it is based here in New York. It's called Stories of Gabriel by Esther Alex. And the stories are, like, so vivid and colorful. And it really is a sad story. Um, But the way that she brings the characters together and they all kind of, like, talk about this one incident and you get to see perspectives from different characters. Excellent. It's amazing. I will definitely check that out. And thank you so much for taking time today. It was so interesting to learn about your work. You are the first person working in philanthropy on the podcast so i really appreciate your time today (laughs) okay thanks it's been great chatting with you that's all for this week folks i hope you enjoyed our conversation if you enjoyed this podcast visit agentsofchangenej.org and click the donate button to support us you can also find us on twitter and instagram and please follow us on spotify itunes or stitcher wherever you get your podcasts and you can listen to this and all past episodes This podcast was written, recorded, produced, and edited by me with outreach and scheduling and support from the rest of the team, Dr. Ami Zoda, Dr. Yoshida Ornelas-Vanhorn, Dr. Max Ong, Dr. Lariah Edwards, Summer Ahmad, and Maria Paula Rubiano. Our music is Now Sun by Poddington Bear. Our team would love to hear from you. Email us at agentsofchangenej at gmail.com with any suggestions for the show, questions for the fellows, reviews, or just a chat and sign up for our monthly Agents of Change newsletter at the program homepage, agentsofchangenej.org. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity in science and health going. Join me next time when I speak with my friend and former Agents of Change assistant editor, Hannah Seo, who is now a reporting fellow at the New York Times Well Desk. Have a great week, folks.